Welcome to Trucking After Hours, of course, from truckingpodcast.com. Buck Ballard here, and today would be the 3rd of August, 2020. I do believe you'll enjoy today's interview. This is just, actually, I know you will. This has just been a blast. I had a chance, I recorded this about a week and a half or so ago, to interview a gentleman named Bud Brutzman. Bud is executive producer of several TV shows and, and different projects that you will recognize through the conversation, Overhauling being one of them. Uh, he is also married to AJ, Adrian Janik, who we interviewed a couple of months back. And I'll put a link in the uh, show notes there on truckingpodcast.com. You can find it and uh, link to that interview if you have not heard it. That was a, a fun conversation also. Bud has a lot of accomplishments. As I was offered the opportunity to to talk to him. And I'm thinking overhauling and a couple of other shows he's done. And I looked through his cinematography and he's got some neat stuff. And when we'll get into it in the interview and asking him about those, but I got digging and he's an excellent, uh, not just executive producer of some really great content. Uh, he's a, a, a very skilled and accomplished Baja 1000 racer uh, with a win in his belt He's been involved in some really cool marketing and uh, promotional things, helped launch the Ford Raptor. We'll be talking about that later in the show. It's just a fun interview. I think you will find his enthusiasm and energy somewhat infectious. It, it's just one of those that you love to hear and just makes you think, am I living my life to the fullest? Because this guy sure is. With that, I'm just going to go straight to the interview, and I think you will enjoy that. So with that, let's move to the tape. As promised, boys and girls, I have Bud Brutzman on the line. And if you remember, uh, oh, we're going back a few months, I interviewed his beautiful wife, Adrian, uh, Adrian Janik, when she was... Uh, putting her calendar out and doing some things on overhauling. Uh, unlike his wife, he's the guy behind the scenes that produces a whole lot of stuff. I don't know where to start. I've got rabbit holes and I've got things that fascinate me, but uh, maybe it would be easier for you to give just the uh, the short bio of who Bud is. <laughs> I don't know if it did, though, because I've been in the business for 27 years. I'm not sure if there's a short bio Uh you know, your your audience, I think, would love to know that we were able, uh, I must go about 10 years now, I'm not sure, the date of it, but, you know, we were able to pull off a series called American Trucker, which we did for two seasons, and that was one of the best projects we've ever done, right, highlighting these heroes of American Road, and then the areas we got to go into, and the stuff we got to learn, and, and I don't know, it always... It always kind of brings, you know, brings back that childhood when you're, when you're a kid cruising, cruising down the road and see these big truckers and the fantasies those bring in. But, but that was, that was a fun project. But yeah, I've been doing it for 26, 27 years. Don't tell me too many people that I'm, I'm married to that amazing, beautiful creature. Cause I try to, you know, pinch myself and just keep it quiet <laughs> and not, <laughs> not flaunt it too much. So, uh, I usually don't tell anybody that. So thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> it, I'll tell you, it was a great conversation. Your publishers, your publishers, your publicist set me up well for that. Let's just shoot right down a rabbit hole, which we happen to do a lot on the uh, the trucking podcast. Also, I've rebranded some of the show, Trucking After Hours. This will go in both feeds. You and I have a connection, and I'm going to start it out this way. When I was 16 years old, in uh, actually 13 to 15, my dad was trying to get a transfer to Bend, Oregon. And we ended up in Glenrock, Wyoming for two years. Uh, you have a Wyoming connection. I'm, I'm very sorry to hear that, by the way. I'm very, <laughs> very incredibly sorry. Is, is it because you broke down? Is that why you did like your transmissions crapped out when you got out of Utah? You know, you're, you're not too far off. That's a whole nother rabbit hole. But yes, every time I go through Wyoming, we tend to have a breakdown that first few years. It was funny. But you have a history in Wyoming, I understand. Well, I spent a lot of time there. I grew up in Wyoming. I was just actually back in Wyoming uh Two weeks ago, we went back up to the mountains, and I took my son uh, four-wheeling and fishing and kayaking and stuff like that. And actually, the uh, the sheriff of Glen Rock went to school with my brother. I think his name is Doug Lazay. I think that's the name. 
Um, but I, I think I saw him at my brother's wedding or something like that. Yeah, but Doug Blase was a, a friend of my brother's name at the school together. I think he is the, uh, the sheriff of Glen Rock or Rock Springs. I get him mixed up. But yeah, well, I'm from <laughs> Wyoming originally. I go back all the time uh, to, to visit my family and my, my dad and my brother. And uh, it's an amazing place to be from, for sure. It has not been to Oregon, but uh, I, I learned how to be a badass. Let's just leave it that way. I'm, I'm a city boy at heart, grew up in Portland and living out here now in Green Bay. But uh, I learned how to be a badass. I learned how to ride a motorcycle. One other thing that surprised me here on Rabbit Holes, I've got one more to go with. I'm looking at your, your – I went out of uh, – Wikipedia and your your cinematography. I'm your your hit list of all of these things you've done: overhaul and chasing Baja, living the low life, all of this streetcar stuff. And I come up with a TV show my my wife and I used to watch on I think Saturday mornings when it was on. Living with Ed. How do you go from all of this gearhead stuff to Ed Begley? Ed was amazing. You know, it's funny that uh, one of my development executives working for me at the time brought this thing up to me and said. And by the way, we just happen to catch a wave, and a lot of our business has to do with timing. So, and I'm, I'm going to bring that really back to an interesting granular level, so we can all understand it, right? So, and I said the same thing. I'm like, why, why would I ever, why would I ever do a show on this crazy, wacky guy who's an environmentalist who rides his bike to the Oscars, who, who composts all his food, grows his own food, doesn't have any trash. Uh, you know, powers his electric car through the sun, all the stuff. And, and we became great friends. And he is an absolute amazing man. So I go over to their house to have dinner with him and his wife, Michelle, uh, and both of them are amazing people. And I figured out in that setting, really, I figured out what the show was, right? So here, here's the show. And I'm not sure if I can cuss or not. You're going to tell me because I got to hold it. You go right ahead. I got a mouth like a trucker. Okay. So here's what I figured out in the show, right? So, Forward-facing, Ed Bagley is probably, the, at the time, the most famous environmentalist, the face of environmentalist, right? Because he's not really in your face about it. He just walks the walk, and he rides his bike, and he shows you good ways, and he doesn't preach about it. And so he's kind of the face of environmentalist at that time, 2005, 2006, right? Great guy. So he is really at the, the upper echelon of the environment, right? Yeah, so then you turn, you turn to the other side of the table, and his wife doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> about that, right? I love it. <laughs> so that's that's why it's so interesting to me. It, it's so interesting because you could be the greatest piano player in the world. You could be the world's greatest opera singer, and at the end of the day, you come home and you're just a married asshole like the rest of us, right? <laughs> like, yeah, that's nice. I know that's fine. And they and the stuff that they fight about, like I sat there at dinner and like she takes showers for four and a half hours, for four and a half minutes, just to despite me, and I'm like wait a minute, this is what you guys fight about? Like, she she wants to eat out, she's drinking wine, she wants a Mercedes, she doesn't want the damn Prius, she wants to take a five-minute shower. So we decided that it, as just in this little box is you have you have this catalyst, you have this amazing environmentalist, right? It's, it's just like you're the world's greatest scientist, and his wife is like, I don't care about any of that shit. And it really <laughs> is a... And I don't know about you and your relationship to your marriage, but when you come home, you're no longer the, the CEO or a successful guy. You're just some dumb asshole that has to take out the trash. Um, <laughs> and that I, I found that to be so interesting. She didn't buy into it. She didn't care. She would literally be open the scene where he's literally sitting outside uh, the bathroom, banging on the door saying, you've been in there for seven minutes. I don't know what you're doing, but you're wasting water. And they have these arguments and she doesn't care. Like, ah! Oh, <laughs> so that, that's, hilarious. that's hilarious. And at the time, it, oh, it, it was, and the show became this kind of this, this show became all this, this cool little scripted comedy uh, because it really was a hybrid reality show for us, which I'll get to in a second. But really, the timing was the environment was really uh, an important thing, right? And I'm not, I'm not the world's greatest environment, but I do believe we have to take care of our planet, right? Environmentalists, but we have to take care of our, our planet for sure. We shouldn't do, we shouldn't be wasting stuff. We do have to heal our. I, I get disgusted when there's trash on the beach and stuff like that. If you're not, you're completely out of your mind. Um, I don't take it to extremes, but it did teach me a lot. I think we've all learned a lot. But we caught the wave kind of at the beginning of it. Um, and when we were, and we were pitching and pitching and pitching, and finally got to HUTV, and that, that show did a very interesting thing. But we went to HUTV, and we did three seasons. And then something wacky happened. Discovery Channel decides that this is such a big movement, they're going to create a whole new channel called Planet Green. 
So then HGTV decided that they're not going to do any green programming because Discovery's already doing it. So then I had to like make this is kind of a monument, a monumental deal, right? It's like trading your star quarterback to the opposing team. Right? Oh yeah. So then I moved the show in this really interesting business maneuver off of HGTV and back on, and I, I got it on Planet Green for three more seasons. So, you know, we learned a lot from Ed, and the style of show turned out to be this really cool sort of scripted drama. All we had to do is set scenarios up and just let them really kind of bicker at each other. Like, oh, <laughs> like and moan at each other. You had, you had his point where he's like literally... He would, uh, I'm not joking about this. He's a very amazing, disciplined, incredible person. He would uh, ride a bike, and the bike was hooked to a generator. Generator would put power into the batteries, and he had figured out mathematically how how long he has to power the bike in order to make some toast. So he would, would, in a a certain sense, he would do a carbon debt for himself. So if I want to have toast in the morning, if I want to have toast in the morning with a regular conventional toaster and it has this many, it carries this much watts to do my toaster, how long, how many watts do I got to jam back into the battery array for me to enjoy toast? So he would punish himself that way. So he'd go ride the bike for 30 minutes, then he would make some toast with the power that he just put back into the battery array from the bicycle, and he would enjoy his toast. <laughs> that <laughs> like, is you, hilarious. You don't have to make that shit up. Yeah, you can't yeah, you make that shit up. You don't have to make it up. No, you can't. <laughs> I always thought that he was the real deal. It's been a few years since I've seen those, but that is why my wife and I got a kick out of it was the tension between the two of them. He walked the walk, unlike, you know, the Al Gores of the country. That that man lived by his own words and, and agree or disagree, you've got to admire the commitment to uh, to a cause. Well, he was always critically aware, uh, and without getting too political, because I don't really do that anyhow. But, no, we'll see. You know, like the Al Gore thing this. was... Yeah, yeah. We'll see out of it. But the, what, what I think what Al Gore learned is when you go out and you preach and you go out and say the world's coming to an end, you go out and you make these documentaries and sell books and you do all these tours, and then you live in an 11,000 square foot mansion that burns more, more watts and more candle power and more, more watts than, than a Walmart, people are going to say you're a hypocrite. And Ed Begley was very aware of his peers saying, I can't do this. I'll give you an example. Uh, we we <laughs> and we did it all the time, and I tested him because it's kind of my job, and I, this is about as close as I get to to bullshit reality TV, uh, where you kind of set them up and they and then they react naturally. We were in New York, and he was doing a uh, a press tour for the series, and we were filming it, and it was like uh, for Regis and Kelly or something like that back in the time for Good Morning America. So we had him at a hotel, which is fine, and this is by the way, none of this is acting; it's all just how much of an amazing human being he is. And I did this, and it makes me, a, I'm, I'm the asshole. So that's fine. <laughs> so we had his, his appointment, um, we had his appointment at like 7.30, which is like 16 blocks up the street, or and we at 7 o'clock, the car was going to pick him up and take him there. No problem at all. So I send a limo to go pick him up, a gigantic <laughs> stretch limo to go pick him up so he can go on the morning show, probably Good Morning America, and talk about environments. So he walks out of the hotel, he kind of looks around, he kind of sees a limo, and goes up to him on camera. So we're hiding, we're like looking at this, like, oh, we can't wait, wait to see how this, is he going to get into it? But goes up to the guy, you're here for me, yes, I'm here for you. The guy opens the door, he's like, I'm sorry, I can't get in. Hands the guy 40 bucks, asks for directions how to walk to the studio, literally walk to the studio and show up pouring sweat. Right? Oh, that's <laughs> hilarious. On cue, he is that guy. You're like, <laughs> I can't be seen in a stretch limo to go 16 blocks. Are you out of your mind? I'd like, I appreciate you. I'm not disrespecting you. I'm not, I'm not going to yell at you and call you a piece of shit because you, you're unaware. I just not something that I believe in. How do I walk there? And he got directions and he walked up the street and he showed up, you know, almost late because we tricked him. But he, but he never really, he understood the game. He was like, we're going to push you and we're going to test you. And we're going to do things. And you just stay true to your core. Wow. <laughs> You've got to love that. Um, as long as we're going true to core, something that I think is true to your core is I dig through your stuff. You've got some trophies somewhere for some Baja racing. Am I understanding that right? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually looking. I have a, I, have, I think I have two. Let's see, one, two. I only have two. It's not that many trophies. I mean, the first, it's very weird. Baja. So I, I love racing the score of Baja 1000. Uh, Off road racing just kind of turns into a. I really didn't know because I grew up in Wyoming, right? So here, here's the correlation for you and I. When you grow up in Wyoming, I was going to say this because you, you found out yourself. 
there's really nothing to do. So, right, so the, the, the most amazing thing to do while you're in Wyoming is really just scare the shit out of yourself and try to really try to like endanger your life. That's the funnest <laughs> thing you could possibly do, right? If you, you nailed it. If you can, if you can, oh yeah, if you can tucker up and, and almost die like four or five times in a weekend, then you're doing, you had a fun weekend. That was pretty good. It doesn't matter if it's on the water or in a motorcycle or a car. So we all kind of grew up off-roading and sliding in the snow and doing kinds of dumb stuff. And then I got into, you know, mid, mid 2000s, I got into some road racing and that was kind of fun and did some Corvettes and some Mustang racing, um, Mustang challenge racing and stuff like that. And that was, that was okay. I'll tell you why it was okay. It was just okay because it takes an enormous amount of focus and discipline to do that kind of road racing, right? And I'm sure you've road raced before, but the, you know, the braking positions, the shifting positions, the throttles, you know, there's, there's a, an enormous amount of talent. It is incredibly hard because I've done it for years. I still love to do it occasionally, but when you're doing it in competition, there's just, it's repetition, repetition, hit this point, hit this, you got to hit your braking points, your apex points, your exit speed. You get all that, all that perfectly. And technically you get into this rhythm and your mind drifts off. You start, you start to get bored, right? You know, at least I do, because my mind goes 10,000 miles a minute, as you can tell. So my mind gets bored. So then I was introduced by uh, a company who I'm very close with. I do a lot of business with called BF Goodrich. And BF Goodrich, who the most amazing tire company on the planet, they, because of the stuff I was doing in television, decided to engage me as a, as a brand ambassador and then put me on the performance team because they knew I liked to race. And I did some road racing for them every once in a while. Then they introduced me to off-road racing. And here's off, and what I happened to me when I was off-road racing, I was like, holy shit, what is this? This is, it's like lawless, crazy, cage fighting, do whatever you want to do. And the best part about it, as I didn't have to worry about my mind drifting off, because I was so scared out of my mind every second of every turn that I was going to die, I found out something about myself, is that if I'm going to die, I'm oddly, oddly very focused, right? You get in the car, you go 100 miles an hour over cliffs and waters and horses and cows and other people bumping you. You magically get out of the car and you're like, I didn't think about work. I didn't think about phones. I didn't think about text message. I didn't think about bills. I didn't think about anything for 12 hours because literally I was scared for my life. <laughs> I was just like, uh, I was scared for my life for 12 hours. So I really started getting into it. So back to your question, and I know I'm long-winded, but maybe that helps. The first couple of times that I was racing with some really high-profile people, at the time, 2005, 2006, you would finish, you know, like, if I could just finish this race, right? That's, so that's the accomplishment, right? The accomplishment is, if I can go there and just finish, that would be amazing. So we started, okay, so we finished a couple of times, and at the time, it was owned by another uh, amazing gentleman named Sal Fish. We would get a little pin, like a hat pin. I'm not kidding, a hat pin. It said finished. I finished the 2007 Baja 1000. I had a bunch of them in a trophy case, little tiny pins <laughs> that you put on the lapel. And that's that's all you got. Like I literally just risked my life for, for 36 hours driving the, the most dangerous race in the planet, and I got this stupid little hat pin that cost 12 cents. I was like, oh, so wow. there's no logic whatsoever, which makes it even better. Wow! But then there's a couple interesting things started to happen, um, and this is the, this is the drug, right? The drug is not only the adrenaline and the fun and the race and stuff like that. It's like you start coming in second, and you start coming in third, and you're like, wait a minute. And then you, as an analytic mind, you're like, well, if I did this and I did this and I did this, and maybe if I had a a good partner driving this part, we would win, right? So then, after two or three years, I started on the hunt for it. Right, I was like, uh, in 2007, I thought we were going to win, but we crap. We were leading the race. This is actually a very horrible story, but a friend of mine who's actually sitting here with me, uh, Bill Weber, uh, we were leading the race. I don't think we actually knew we were leading the race at the time, but we were ahead for sure. Uh, and there was a car in front of us, and we, were, we thought that was uh, one of our competitors in a different class. We were chasing them down. We are about 90 miles from the finish line in the 2007 Baja 1000s. And this is this is actually what got me. I know for a fact I learned this lesson forever. Is like I remember we're we're flying, right? I and mean, there's really nothing I could have done about it. We're doing 80, 90, 100 miles an hour. <laughs> and I and I know we're in first place. I didn't want to say anything. And then mentally you're you have these really creepy and you've seen the videos online where people celebrate too early. This is yeah. one of those. 
I started, to, I said, I had this weird voice in my head, this complete, which is, by the way, got never there again. It got, it, it, it got, I hit something so hard. I think that thought shoved, like ran out my ass or something. But so I thought I had this really interesting thought. It was like, it said, Bud Gretzman, Baja 1000 winner. I had this thought, like, God, that sounds really good. I can't believe I'm actually that close to getting it. And then we hit a tree. Oh, no. Really hard. <laughs> we hit a tree really hard. Uh, my co-driver, my co-driver who was driving at the time, I was pilot, I was uh, co-piloting at that time. He broke his neck. We went sideways through a bunch of barbed wire and a bunch of concrete, and we slid to a stop like, 150 feet away. And all I remember, I was holding my breath and I was watching the barbed wire roll up. And then I do remember he yells afterwards. He's pissed off because he wrecked the car, and I just started laughing because I just somehow survived that i was laughing out of just pure fear and, and <laughs> anguish because i just like i can't believe we just hit a tree doing 100 miles an hour and somehow i can still feel my toes so that was really good yeah so anyhow long story short chase that for a long long time this will circle back to your your guest you had a couple of weeks ago who is a uh <laughs> i don't know i don't want to say anything bad about her but she's sometimes a realist and sometimes very uh very stern <laughs> So 2012, we put together a really, really good team and a really good chase team, and we ended up winning the Baja 1000. And it was 1,238 miles. Uh, we almost had a complete flawless race. We, we busted one CV joint, but we paired it on the fly. Um, and I do remember calling my amazing, beautiful, perfect wife so excited, like I just won the lottery, right? <laughs> I, was like, I was so happy. I'm like, honey, you'll never believe it. I just won the Baja 1000. She goes, good. Now you can retire. And she hung up on me. <laughs> she did not like me racing. <laughs> she, she's like, flat out, congratulations. Now you can quit. <laughs> Go out on top. That's what I think. And she hangs up on me because she just did not like, you know, uh, and she was right, you know, did not like it. The central part of us racing like that, going down there, she didn't see the, the, the fun of it. Oh, man. There was a quote I was trying to find it as I was listening to that story from someone who I believe is a friend of yours uh, doing some uh, chasing the 200-mile mark, David Freiberg, or something about I would rather, you know, die doing something daring than live a boring life. And it's just, oh, Yeah, Freiberg is amazing. And, he, he, you know, he's such, a, he's such an amazing editor and writer. I've known Freiberg for probably 20 years. Uh, and he's been down there with us. I've had him down down in Baja with us doing stuff like that. But yeah, no, you have to. I think you, you know, here's the thing. I think if you get successful in life at anything you do, it doesn't matter if it's radio or television, or if you're a successful doctor or a lawyer or you know, you, you, you're a fisherman and you're successful, it doesn't really matter. And it actually doesn't matter your level of success, which is actually why Baja is so interesting and important, right? Because you don't need to be a billionaire rich. You can, you can do a $1,500 Volkswagen and enter it as long as it has a roll cage, a motor, and a fuel cell you can enter it. I mean people are entering the side by side at fifteen thousand dollars, twenty thousand dollars. You can there's a side by side class you can enter in there. You don't get really stupid until you get the the, the drug. But I think that once you become successful you, you you really need to push yourself, right? You have to know you're alive. You have to be you have to like understand like you gotta challenge yourself. And the challenge part and I've done this because we, we just finished a military documentary about Baja is what's so interesting about it is, did you ever play, you, you know that really annoying cerebral game when we were kids uh, called Risk? You ever play that thing? <laughs> it's, it's Risk. Wow, long time, yeah. It was, yeah, it was a little too heady for most of us, including me and too many pieces, and you ended up stepping on them like Legos, whatever. But here's the correlation. The correlation is, and I, I heard this a lot from my veteran friends, is like, it's like going into battle because there's so much unknown, there's a massive amount of danger, there's all kinds of logistics, I mean, there's meeting here, there's food, there's tires here, hit this point, there's radio communication, there's, so it, it's like my version, and I'm not in the military, but I appreciate everybody who's, who has served and been in the military, but it's my version of battle. Like, okay, here's what we're doing. You got down there with 60 people, and we're doing this, and we're doing this, and we're doing that, and we're going to go over here, and you're going to meet us here, and the truck breaks down, you guys come in and triage and help us get up running. It's like, you're in battle. Like, it is amazing amount of. You know, and everybody's along for the ride. My brother went to me like 10 years in a row. We talked about it last time I saw him up in Wyoming. He's like, that was some good times. Those are interesting times going into battle. You know, and you're battling the desert. And I'm definitely not connecting it like I think I'm a warrior in the battlefield. But, you know, that's my version of it. It's it's, uh, it's definitely hell on wheels. It's a, it's a fun thing for sure. 
it, it's the intensity in life. And while we're on the military subject, um, for some, I, you did not serve, I don't believe, but you probably know more about the Navy SEALs than most civilians. You did a series on that, did you not? You know? um, yeah, I did a series. I, I have a lot of SEAL team friends, and here's how it goes. I know generally know more about the history of Navy SEALs than the Navy SEALs. Because they don't know their own history. They're just, you know, too busy just being the, the world's greatest badasses. I did a series, uh, through History Channel under, under Special Ops. And then, um, I decided, and I think this was just a big F you to my English teachers or anybody in the Wyoming public school system who <laughs> thought I was an idiot. I decided to write a series of books based on Navy SEALs because at the time that I started the project in 1998, 1999, here's the odd thing is, you know, I was a, uh, a product of the Wyoming school system, which by the way, I promise you, not that good. Me, 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 product, the, the ongoing product. I'm sure it's good now. I was 29 years old, and here I was, tasked, um, and I had a lot of ends in the Pentagon, and a lot of good with, with WARCOM, and I had some of the SEAL team guys on my side, you know, pushing me along. And I had to do this thing that really, honestly, and I promise you, wasn't done before, right? Um, and I'll tell you what, what, what I mean by that. What wasn't done before was no one really pushed and pushed and pushed and got down to the piece of paper, the document, the human being who stood the SEAL teams up. We all understand the genesis, right? There was an unconventional guerrilla warfare uh, speech that John F. Kennedy did in 1962 that kind of was a catalyst. And he gave, at the time, he gave $1.4 million to each, each branch of military to stand up a guerrilla warfare. He knew already what was going on in Southeast Asia. And when he was doing his speech, and you know, people need to understand that, is that you know, back time, that information, sometimes these guys have information that we don't. So when he's doing the speech about, oh, by the way, we're going to do some, uh, we're going to stand up some guerrilla warfare things because I think that our uh, our next war is going to be done in the jungles. And then four years later, five years later, we're well, we already did with, with some of the uh, CIA teams, but um, you know, we're we're in the, in the battle. Yeah, five years later, we're in the middle of the battle on uh, Vietnam. So we really, like, I was 28, and I just had to dig into this building of this secret organization that really wasn't supposed to be around and be really super quiet. Where did the paperwork come from? Where did the criteria come from? What do the names come from? So we ended up doing a, at that time, it'd be a two hour special for the history channel. And it was narrated by Tom Selleck. And I talked to Tom and I was like, Hey, you, you were awesome. And, this, and the SEAL team guys appreciate who you are. And you played Navy officers, Magnum PI. Some people forget that. And they were honored to have him do it. So he did it. And then, some of the SEAL teams, because there was, you know, 50 years of history at that time, or, you know, 30 or 40 years of history. Yeah, 30 years of history at that time. 48 to be exact. 48 years of history at that time. And I couldn't condense it all in a two-hour special, right? We were doing too much. We had too much stuff. So then I decided to take, I transcribed the 182 interviews that I did from all the top SEAL team guys around the country. And we put it into a three-part a book called The Complete History of the Navy Seals, which was put up by Penguin. So at 28, I had a three-part, I, you know, I thought it was, I didn't make much money on it. It was just really like the idea to have my name on a book and, and kind of tie all the stuff together and write the forward and, and be a part of it and see it in Barnes & Noble at the time or wherever the bookstore was. And it um, was cool. Yeah, so I, I, we, we definitely know a lot about and can respect the early Navy Seals. And then really around 2002, 2003, Shit got really real with you know the war in Iraq and Afghanistan and stuff like that. So a lot of Philippines weren't playing media and weren't playing around with us. And the only way you could do some stuff with them is to embed with them and go in country. And that really wasn't where my career was taking me, even though it sounds fun now. <laughs> yes, it would be if I understand the history. And correct me if I'm wrong in here, but if I understand the history of special ops. Through the Clinton years, Clinton wanted to lower the standards a little bit so they could get more more men in and seals refused to do it they said we can do more with less we're not lowering our standards and that's part of why they're out in the middle of nowhere where there's no ocean anywhere near yeah i think you know there was there was a lot of there was a lot of seal teams or seal seal teams added in 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 those years right in in the clinton years i mean because when i i was doing stuff there was there was definitely six there could have been seven but now you know there's green team and seal team eight and seal team nine seal team ten they added a lot of seal teams Definitely, we're not lowering the standards. 
And I think that's dangerous. I think it's super dangerous to lower standards. Again, we're not going to get into a massive political discussion, but I think in, in those levels of, at that level of combat, lowering the standards and dangers of people's lives, right? Because the SEAL team is all about force multiplying and have your brothers six, right? You've got to be, you know, you've got to be in the foxhole with these guys. You've got to have six guys who can come in that are 100% dedicated, 12 guys who are 100%, you know, dedicated towards a, uh, towards a mission. And, if one guy's in there and he happened to fall under the, the weaker criteria, you're putting all those other guys in danger. So I think, I, you know, I, that kind of goes to a, a bigger thing. That, um, like, I think that level of criteria, and I know it's not politically correct, but I think, you know, the, the criteria is set for a reason, right? And if you can pass it, awesome. doesn't matter color, creed, ethnicity, sex, or anything like that. Pass it. Because your, your job requires you as a special operator to do these certain things. And out in the field, there is going to be no social police telling you, oh, don't worry, you don't have to drag that body up the stairs anymore. You can you drag half the body. No, they have to do some pretty hardcore shit. And they should be at that level of mental capacity and that physical to be able to do all that stuff and more. Hey, we'll get back to the rest of the uh, conversation in just a moment here. Real quick, if you're an independent, you're out there finding your own freight, your own loads, and I know times have been uh, really tough over the pandemic and things going on, it's been a tough year, year and a half for some of you guys. You need to find the best loads out there, the most brokers, uh, the most data, all of the information you need to make the smartest decision you can and find the best paying loads from brokers who will pay their bill. If you go to truckingpodcast.com, you will find, as we've had for quite some time, our link to Trucker's Edge, powered by DAT. That is a great load board for the guy who only owns one or two or three trucks, trying to find some loads, keep them going, getting all of the information you need. You need uh, credit scores, days to pay, all of that stuff to make sure you find a good load, you find a good broker, and you get paid in a timely manner. But we've kicked things up a notch. If you want to go beyond Trucker's Edge, you'll find just below that link in the sidebar, you will find DAT Power. You can now try that for 30 days free also. Give it a shot and see what you think of that. It is, of course, a little more money, a lot more data. So take a look at the two offerings. I think between those two, you will find something you will like and you will stick with. So again, go to truckingpodcast.com. You can check them both out right there in the sidebar and uh, do your homework, guys. But we want you to make more money and find the best loads. Now let's get back to our conversation with Bud Rutherford. My Baja career led me to something amazing in 2008. It was like uh, the summer of 2008. So I got contacted by... Ford Motor Company, Jamie Allison was the head of Ford Racing at the time, and they were going to launch a off-road capable vehicle called the Raptor. So it is an F-150 truck. I was part of the, and there's an article that came out recently in the Score Journal, but I was chosen as part of the development team and driver for, in 2008, for the Raptor vehicle, the Raptor prototype vehicle. We all flew up to Detroit, sat around the room, worked with all the engineers and all the all the mechanics and all the people that are involved with developing the Raptor and designing the Raptor vehicle. The truck. Oh, I think it's so amazing. I know. It's it's ridiculous. I I've gotta buy another one pretty soon. And then we were at we were tasked uh, down in Arizona with a, a guy named Fouts Motorsports to build one and then oh yeah, and this was scary, crazy scary, because I was like, you gotta remember, I'm I'm an idiot from Wyoming. <laughs> I, I grew up in Wyoming. There is no way I should be in a development meeting at Ford to launch what has become the number one truck, right? The best special market vehicle that Ford has ever launched, right? Yes. And the Bronco is going to be right behind it because that new Bronco looks badass. But I was told by many Ford executives that the Raptor was the single best special special market vehicle product they've ever built, right? That thing is top notch. No one's even come near it. Now, everybody keeps trying and Dodge tries and Chevrolet tries, but no one's come to anything even remotely close to that Raptor. And we, I drove the very first Raptor and raced the very first Raptor. We documented it um, with a film called Born in Baja. It was 38 hours or 40 hours driving that thing, and it was awesome. It was scary as hell because you literally 
it's what, what started freaking me out too is like, you know, it's a 15, 20 million dollar truck because it's all prototype. And then you have all like the engine is stand prototype and the A arms are prototype and the suspension over here is prototype. Like everything's prototype. And they keep on telling you they're like, uh, don't break anything because we can't, we don't have any replacement parts. And sometimes when you're in Mexico, you bring the plate, you break an A arm and you break, you know, some hub or something like that, you can replace it because you bring extra. But all the shit's experimental and all the shit <laughs> is like, new and there are no replacement parts you don't break anything but race like hell because we got to finish <laughs> like it's oh, all wow. kind of that you're sitting on this 15 million dollar time bomb but you do not want to be the asshole that, that wrecks yeah. or rolls or blows up or, or crashes because everybody's going to be mad at you right oh, that has geez. to do with being a good teammate was it, you know, what, being a good teammate in but was that was that tree still there uh, well, luckily, um, I, I, I really hate you for bringing that up, uh, but that tree, that tree is south, uh, in a peninsula in a little town called Todos Santos. Uh, but no, the tree was, we didn't race down the peninsula. We did a loop race that year in 2008. So we, I didn't get near the tree. Thank God. <laughs> that, oh, wow. That was the only time I've ever, uh, only time I've ever crashed in Baja was that time. And it was a bad one. It was super, super bad. Uh, no, we didn't hit a tree. We ended up finishing and, I'm very proud to say, and I said this in an article, and I don't really care if people believe me or not, you know, the truth is the truth, which is that vehicle got launched off of one marketing campaign. And that marketing campaign was a marketing campaign that we designed, that we did. It was take a truck, go race it, make a film, put Born in Baja, finish the race, and then let's see if the, uh, if the off-road community will embrace it. That was it. You don't see commercials. You don't see ads for it. I mean, they, you know, there were some articles and there's some good stuff. And Rob McCaffrey and all did some really good stuff. But that was it. That truck got launched based in the only media is the media that we did, that my company pulled out. So, okay, we're going to do this commercial. We'll do this on social. We're, we launched a, uh, we did a movie called Born in Baja. We had a Hollywood premiere with all kinds of vendors in there. And that thing just, and that's, I'm not saying it's because of our silly movie or, or the marketing stuff we did, but that thing became a juggernaut. But that was the only thing that helped launch that, that vehicle. Because at the time, it was 2008. And remember, 2008 was a horrible time in the economy. Oh, yeah. We just had the, uh, the, mor- the mortgage crisis. And now um, you have a horrible, horrible mortgage crisis, right? The bank, stock market's in the tank. The banks are freaking out. and They're all getting indicted. And Ford decides to launch a $70,000 <laughs> off-road vehicle. And it worked. Yes. They're, yep. they're still doing well with that. It's a, something in demand. That thing is, it is an awesome truck. I mean, it, it, I've never owned an F-150 before, and now I own an F-150. And it's, that has something to do with it, even though I certainly don't own a Raptor. i got a nice little Lariat out there in the driveway. You're now working yeah, on uh, some uh, some Chip Foo stuff still? Overhauling? Yeah, we we just finished our our la- another season of overhauling. You know, we I've been, I created that show sixteen years ago, and I think we've been canceled four or five times. I can't remember. <laughs> we keep on getting canceled when the discovery keeps on bringing us back. Uh, I think I've only pitched that show one time, and then the show keeps on getting picked up and done because it really has to do with the core. The core of it is the core of overhaul. It's got a weird, really cool, not by accident, uh, magical formula. And I do get fairly violent and angry when people say that I do car shows or that's a great car show because it's not really a car show to me. Um, that show is really built around people. What we're doing is we're rebuilding and reconnecting people, right? The car is a connected tissue between people, a father, a son, or a, a payback from a, a, a mother to a daughter, you know, or a famous car or a project they're always working on, something they always want to have to give back. So, in, in television, you know, sometimes you call it wish fulfillment or feel good TV. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I love helping people, smiling. I know Chip is completely addicted to the fact of pleasing people and helping people and watching the appreciation. Of get, they get something that they would never, ever do. People don't put that much time and energy and money in motor swap. And we all, we all get cars and we tinker with them and we'll drop a new motor. Or maybe one day we'll save up $700 and we'll get a carburetor. But we rebuild those cars from the ground up. The pranks were just fun to do because I'm pretty, you know, <laughs> pretty obnoxious. I like the pranks. I like to, I like to mess with people. Um, but at the core of it was really to, to please people, make people happy. And I remember when I created the show, I never liked the show punk because they were really just punking people and messing with people for no reason other than to make them look like an ass. 
right? Like, okay, haha, we got you. It's an income tax evasion thing, and you pull all your stuff out of the house, and you look like an idiot because you were, you know, crying or freaking out. And I thought there was no reward on it. So one of the things that was interesting about overall, especially early on, is we would just torture people for seven days. But <laughs> the end of it, you know, a $150,000 car. Like, we didn't have one person ever complain and say you were mean to me. And we did some pretty stupid stuff. Looking back, looking back, we did some pretty dumb stuff, pretty dangerous stuff. But we never had one person complain. We're like, oh, by the way, sorry, all that's fake. But look, here's your $150,000 car. Yeah. Designed by, designed and built by Chip Boots, right? No one ever said, okay. It was like, that's great. And even towards, we had, oh, we had so much fun. It was, it was amazing. The, the cool thing there is you do a great job of making that show about the car and about the owner of the car who is really never present during the build rather than the drama of we got to meet the deadline and this and this and this and all of the, all of the false crap in so many of the other shows. You know, and that was another design. I mean, the design was how do you involve, how do you involve the person, right? And, and get to know who they are if they don't know about it and they're not part of the show. So that's what they're another thing to prank to. Every time that we get them on the phone or meet them in person, which is incredibly hard to do. I mean, it's hours and hours and hours of planning and, 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 and toiling and figuring out to get them on camera reacting. Some of them are really nice. Some of them are really pissed off and some of them are really calm. And you, you, get, you, you can definitely get a lot from learning from people by, by, by the way that they handle themselves. And I promise you, if I was on here, I wouldn't be so good. Because when insurance companies call me and start messing with me, I get pretty vulgar. <laughs> like if, if, like if they would pull half that shit on me, I would get really, really mad and violent. Like, wait a minute. Hold on, asshole. You told me what? No. How about bringing it over here now? I'm like, I would mess with people so much. Like, oh man! Literally, Chris would be doing something, or AJ would be doing. I just write a piece of paper and go, "Hey, say this to him," and then say it to him <laughs> and just piss him off. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, the Motor Trend app. I I watched those guys. I am a. It's the best five bucks a month I ever spent. Was the Motor Trend app? I've had it for a heck of a long time. I found Roadkill when it first came out on YouTube, so I've I've been following that. You do overhauling is also on the Motor Trend app. There's, are there other ones that you're involved in that are on there? Oh, that's a good question. Well, there's um, we did a couple really big things. You know, we did we did Inside Overhaul. And if you haven't seen that, you can check it on the Motor Turn app. Inside Overhaul. And it's just me, Chip, and Chris, kind of just what we did now, just kind of reminiscing about some of the crazy pranks and best cars and you know times that we've had. So we did we call that shoulder program that we did for to help launch the app. And then no, uh, technically, I, you know, it's a good question. I'll have to check my app. I did this other, like, one of the best series I've ever done was for Discovery Channel back in the day. It's one of the first series they did for it. was called Rides. And I'm not sure if Rides is on that Motortrain app. If not, it should be, and I'll push them today to do it. But, no, I don't have that many more shows on there. Inside Overhaul is there, and then 140 or 150 episodes of Overhaul are on that one. I haven't really put any more any other ones that are on that app. And we populated a lot when Velocity was up and running. Um, but I do agree with you. The app is amazing. Uh, cause you know, it's funny with my dad. This, this kind of goes back to our head making conversation. I would sell a show and create a show and put it on TV. And my dad would be pissed off because he couldn't get it on cable. Oh, I got to buy a sports package. I couldn't get that channel. I'm like, dad, spend the $7 to get the sports package. I mean, at least I'm not living at home. <laughs> send me $7, get the sports package, you can watch it. Oh, I don't want to spend $7. Just send it to me in the mail. And he want me to ship him DVDs instead of spending $7 on watching on TV. <laughs> but the app solved that because I can tell anybody in the United States, download the app and watch it. I mean, that's how you consume you know, content now. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. I think Discovery Channel you know, being amazing by putting that thing out. It's amazing to watch. And I, I know they just pulled... So many of the magazines that uh, you and I grew up with are now gone, but they aren't gone. They're digital. They're there. They're on demand. And it's great. I got 15 minutes dead yeah. work waiting for my next move. And uh, I locate trailers in a great big warehouse now. I've been driving truck for over 20 years. And I, I run a what they call a yard dog. I just move trailers around a warehouse. And I got 10, 15 minutes between a move. I'm, boom, I'm either on Motor Trend or I'm writing something in my WordPress app or... Uh, Something, but I love that. That's just wow, some good stuff there. Well, that's that's what you know. It's interesting, is that uh, so? I, I have an interesting thing to tell you, not, and I'm not sure if you care or your listeners care, but that's a, a, an amazing statement that you just said. Because here's the thing: 
people are consuming more content now than ever, right? Which allows my business to grow and allows us as content creators to be bigger, right? Because same thing as your podcast. I mean, if I had 15 minutes waiting in a doctor's office, I, I'm not even kidding. Before, I'd be crawling out of my skin, pissed off because I'm wasting 15 minutes. Now, I can just sit there and consume whatever information I want. doesn't matter if it's car stuff. I listen to podcasts. I listen to this. I'm just I'm feeding my brain all the time. And it's visually and mentally. So we are... And, and that's also the reason why our, our viewing habits have changed because it's not an hour and a half invested in watching a show. You 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 do these fifteen minute you know, bites. You look at the thing. Okay, here's a seven minute show. Okay, I can wait. You know, waiting on the phone and waiting for your wife to come out to the car to get ready to go. Just pull down a video and you watch it. And then by the time she you're done, she comes out. So all we are consuming so much content, and it's growing our industry. Um, and it's not traditional content. Mind you, it's not, you know, hour and a half television. There's a lot of that growing, a lot of that going with the streamers, but there's other ancillary content all the time on all the platforms. And it's, it's awesome. It's a good time to be alive. It's amazing content and it really is. Um, let me move you to one other thing and then I'll let you go. I've had you on a long time and, and I know you're busy and I, I so appreciate your time. You're friends with David. I know the Mustang, the disgusting. I, I don't know if you've ever talked to him about that car at all. I have not. His, his, his disgusting is, I think it was, I think it's a 69, right? Right. And they pulled it out of a wrecking yard in Colorado. Just one of these things for an episode of Roadkill to drag it out and make it run and go, you know, do some burnouts. And he ended up dragging it home. They've done a couple of episodes of uh, Roadkill Garage upgrading the suspension and the drivetrain. But body work wise, all he had was the rusty parts cut out, new metal welded in, and then just blend it to match don't even paint the car just leave it you know like it's been sitting in a wrecking yard since 1969 and drive it down the road with a uh modern drivetrain in it and, and use it as somewhat of a daily driver and i think shows like that are giving people maybe a little bit of permission to know that you've got 40 grand to sink into the car to make everything right you don't have another 40 grand for the paint and body work it's okay it's still a 69 Mustang. Oh no, yeah, and, and by the way, it's a '69 Mach. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's is. a great. I, I actually own a couple of these cars, and they're they're amazing. Yeah, it, Cyberger does that. Cyberger has this this, this workman's class kind of way, which is I don't want to re- I don't want to buy a new motor. Let's pull that one out, and for I mean, it's kind of like my father, even though he's a lot a lot younger. But I, I don't want to put a new. I don't have the money for a new motor. Let's pull that one out, sleeve it, port it put it back in for $79. I'll rebuild that one from new, ba- new, new gaskets and from elbow grease. I mean, that's kind of a lost art, honestly. I mean, you know, take these cars and just keep it rolling. He, he does a great job. Honestly. I mean, Freiburg is a he's super talented, um, and a, an amazing person. He's always been good to us. I was born in 1960. So I grew up with that in, in the late seventies. Nobody wanted those cars. They were, they were gas hogs. Nobody wanted them. And I was able to pick them up for five, six, seven hundred bucks and have a ball with them. And you know, now I can't touch them. They're they're way out of my league. There is a no. I agree. My 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 oh, father when my father ended up, in which we have them now. I have them all. My father was buying up really weird. He did this, and, and I'm still I'm glad I just looked at two of them today. I had I had actually a uh, quiet story. But Chip Goose was with me in Wyoming, and he was rebuilding the quarters on my dad's '65 Mustang. Um, but my dad in the eighties and the seventies would pick up these Mustangs exactly right for three, four hundred dollars. And because we had a lot of land, because that's really what you have one, I mean, you just place them around the land and they sat there until slowly I started thinking, Hey dad, what are you doing with that 70 Mustang? I'm going to take it and rebuild it. And like my brother's like, I have that 69 mock back there. I'm going to take it and rebuild it. And like, yeah, take it. So he, he still to this day has three of them over there. One of them is a 69 or 67 coupe. I showed my son. I'm like, okay, grandpa's going to build that car for you. Oh, wow. (laughs) That always surprised me out here. And I grew up in Oregon, but we're out in Wisconsin now. And the the farmers, when they're done with their truck, they're done with, usually it's the pickup truck or sometimes it's the old family car. It's out in the corner of a field and it's been there for 30 years. Oh, yeah. No, you see them all the time. Chip and I were driving through Wyoming. We're like, look at that. Oh, and there's that. I mean, every car. You're right. When the farm truck's got 150,000 miles on it and the engine doesn't work, you just park it out front. <laughs> Sometimes it sits there for 30 years. Or, <laughs> yeah. Oh. It's, it's always there for parts. Yes, it is. Where can people find Bud Brutzman's work? Yeah, my company is on Facebook is BCII Productions. 
uh, BCI Productions is our, is our Facebook, and our website is BCIITV. Um, and we also are, I'm personally on LinkedIn and I'm always posting stuff on LinkedIn just under Bud Dressman. I post all of our work. Um, pretty easy to find. BCII is the name of my corporation. Um, but you know, we have stuff on BYU Network. We have stuff on Velocity. We have stuff on Speed or on, uh, on Discovery Channel. I'm working on a couple massive deals, a couple of them I can't talk about, but you know, our industry is starting to hopefully pick back up and I'm not going anywhere. Never even planned on going anywhere. That's awesome. And I love having you on the show. This has been a blast. It has been uh, every bit as much fun as uh, as Adrian. You two are full of energy and life, and it's just exciting to hear. All right, sir. Well, thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. Uh, keep keep it up, man. Anything else you uh, ever want to bring to the the guys out here on the road, the trucking podcast, and the guys out here at Trucking After Hours, just uh, have Cynthia get a hold of us, and we'll line up a time, partner. All right. No problem. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. You know, I have had a lot of fun with interviews through the course of my uh, podcasting uh, tenure. Can't call it a career. It's a hobby that's paid a few bills along the way. Uh, Bud's wife, Adrian, was one of those. Bud has just been a blast to talk to. And I thank you so much for being on uh, Trucking After Hours. This has just been epic. It's just been fun to talk to somebody with all of those accomplishments when you know his work more than you know him, uh, the work is the most important thing to him, and it, it comes through. Uh, that was just fantastic. Again, links in the uh, post you'll find at truckingpodcast.com and a link to my interview with uh, his lovely wife, AJ. That is worth listening to. Go back and catch that. You'll truly enjoy that if you haven't yet. And I will be bringing out some more shows, more things going on. If you want to get a hold of me, feedback at truckingpodcast.com goes boom right to my phone. I would love to hear from you. And uh, you'll find some cool pictures there, too, with uh, Bud, Chip Foose, and, and a few others from the gang at Overhauling. I think you'll enjoy going back and reading some of those and listening to some of the other stuff. And we will talk to you all uh, maybe in another week or two. I do have a few other things I would like to bring you. So I plan on bringing out another episode or two. So thank you so much for listening and thank you so much for going to the site and helping it grow. You guys are just the greatest. My life is grounded in a firm routine of coffee, sleep and work. I am not poor.